I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. It's not often that I interview a corporate leader on SuperSoul, but my guest today, Bob Iger, has led a global company with such intention, integrity, and clear vision. I believe he's someone we can learn from about a lot more than business. So many of us grew up watching Disney films. The magic and storytelling was so powerful, generations of fans have been captivated. Ever since Mickey Mouse steamboated his way onto the silver screen in 1928, Disney has set the bar in imagination with a whole lot of heart. Animated movies, theme parks, television, and blockbuster feature films. The $250 billion company is one of the greatest American success stories in modern history. Today, I sit down with the man behind the last 15 years of Disney's unprecedented growth and success, Chairman and CEO Bob Iger. In his new memoir, The Ride of a Lifetime, Bob Iger looks back on his 40-plus year career in the entertainment business. He shares the tough choices he's had to face, the greatest lessons he's learned, and the best advice he's been given. I've known Bob for over three decades. We first met when he was the president of ABC Entertainment. Bob ushered the Walt Disney Company into the future with the acquisitions of Pixar Animation Studios, Marvel Comics, Lucasfilm, and 20th Century Fox. He is also the driving force behind Disney's upcoming streaming service, Disney Plus. I believe Bob Iger is one of the greatest business leaders of our time. So you've finally written this book, and I know that for a long time publishers were trying to get you to write a book, and you always said no. Why did you finally say yes? Well, it was all timed, or so I thought, to when I was going to leave Disney, yeah. uh, which was this year. And I thought, because so many people have asked me for advice, particularly young people, what's right. the secret to your success? I'm okay. sure you get a lot of that. You know, what's the one leadership lesson you could teach us? And because I'm asked so often, I thought it would be nice Let's to put it down. It would be nice to write it down, particularly while I can still remember <laughs> it, while it's fresh in my mind, so that I could give it to people. And I thought the timing would work. Little did I know that that uh, the timing didn't really work, because I'm still at work. Because you were thinking that this would be the end. This would be the sort of swan song. Yes, and I thought this would be a perfect time to write down and kind of create a retrospective of my own. Yeah of you know, this incredibly wonderful personal experience. Yeah. I have to tell you, Ride of a Lifetime surprised me because obviously I read a lot of books, I see a lot of corporate books, I've read a lot of leadership books, and I wasn't sure, you being the calm, cool, reserved <laughs> person that you are, that you would open up your life the way you have done in the Ride of a Lifetime and allow us in. Was that hard for you at first? Because this isn't like normally what you do. No, it letting isn't. Letting people in. It isn't. It was not as hard as I thought it would be. Once I concluded that unless I did, I wouldn't be able to write a good book or tell a good story. Right. But you know, we're in the business of telling great stories. I should have known going into this that 
often to tell a good story, you have it has to come from within, from the heart, from a writer's heart, from a character's heart. And so something clicked along the way, and I realized that to tell the story that I wanted to tell and to teach what I wanted to teach in this book to others, I had to be completely open and generous with what was within me. But, you know, I read it literally cover to cover, and at the end, in the back where you're thanking people, I don't remember who it was you thanked, and you said, it's harder than I thought it would be. Yes, yeah. someone on the publishing side. <laughs> on the publishing yes. side. It was yeah. much harder than I thought it would be. Yeah. Not because of being in touch with my inner self, and it just was more time consuming, and because it is my words and my story, getting it right was more important than anything else I think I've ever created. Yeah. You say in the prologue, this book is not just for aspiring CEOs of the world, but to anyone wanting to be less fearful, more confidently themselves, as they navigate their professional and even personal lives. Those are such good lessons for this audience in particular, our super soul audience. Does this mean that you are fearless? I, I often say to people that I, I was probably born with either no fear gene or a very small one. I, and I, I don't know why. Or maybe I was, t I, I, I was um, as I was being raised, I was, I was raised to be fearless. I don't know. But I don't, I'm, I'm and people ask all the time, what keeps you up at night? What, what makes you afraid? And it, I have you don't have a it. very have difficult a time identifying what that is. I just don't wake up afraid. I don't, I don't approach things with that. A mindset. So let's talk about getting to ABC, working with Rune Arledge. One of my favorite moments in, in the book is Rune Arledge, your boss, your mentor, you're working hard, you're doing all these hours, and you're both standing at the urinal. Yes. I mean, I call that letting us in. <laughs> yes. I debated whether I whether I should describe that or not. I, I think I, I avoided being too graphic. I know, but yes. but I, I, I could picture it, Bob, okay? And what is interesting about it, I always thought, I always wondered, what do guys talk about at the urinals? Is it like looking straight ahead? <laughs> do you actually have a conversation? But deep tell dark, us about that moment. Deep, dark secret here. Right? <laughs> well, you're standing there. If I could let you in, you're standing next to somebody. It's not a stall. Yes. I guess women are mostly you, you yes. stalls. So you, there's no wall between the two of you. And, and this of, is your boss. And you kind of forced to have some kind of conversation. Hey, how are you? Isn't it a nice day? <laughs> Something about the weather. <laughs> you don't want to look anywhere except straight ahead. That's what I thought. <laughs> yes. And I did not have that much interaction with him at the time. He was the big boss. Uh, and so it wasn't often that I was standing next to him with an opportunity to talk. But I didn't want to seem opportunistic. <laughs> oh, I got the guy here while he's vulnerable. Maybe I could ask him some penetrating questions. <laughs> And he asked you how you were doing. Yes, I, some days I, I, I have a tough time keeping my head above water. <laughs> and I guess it had been a particularly tough day. And I, don't, I, could not, I cannot even remember what, what was, was going, going on. on. I have no idea. But I remember him responding so quickly and in such a penetrating way. Get a longer snorkel, like, hey, kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just you think that. it's tough for you? Yeah. You know? I just picture that. You're, you're at the urinal. Your boss says, get a longer snorkel. Yes. He zips up and then he's out and the out door. You go. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Words of wisdom from the big boss. And then when he's out the door, you're like, I should have said something else, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, in a way, I took his response as a put down. <laughs> so I felt, I think I felt kind of small at the time. Well, I never, let's, let's put it this way, I never, I never said the same thing to anybody else when they <laughs> asked me how my day was. <laughs> yeah, because you now believe in being a, a total optimist. You say yeah. that nobody wants to be led by a pessimist. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. 
I think if there's one thing that um, will live with me from the ride of a lifetime is your emphasis on innovation. And you say, I think there's a whole chapter devoted to, you innovate or die. So yes. you learned that early from, I think, Rune. Yes. Yes. Yes, Rune was a big risk taker. And you know he believed that if you just played it safe, you'd never do anything great. Yeah. And he also was quite aware, which is very interesting back then in the 70s, really, when I started working for him, um, that the world was, was changing fast. And because nothing was going to stay the same, you couldn't stay the same, which basically meant you had to continue to right. evolve and innovate, not just to stay with the times, but to maintain, to be, be, to be relevant and maybe to be ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, and so I love- Would you say that's the key to your success with Disney? One of the keys to my yeah. success. Yeah. Being uh, tied to that is just being um, capable of taking big risks. And also relentless perfection, which you talk about here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a concept I love. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, I, I, I'll, I'll describe it as I saw it in someone else first. I, I, I went to Tokyo and I had dinner at a renowned restaurant. Uh, called Jiro, J-I-R-O. There had been a documentary done of this then 88-year-old oh, the, sushi the, yeah, chef the sushi who guy. had won three Michelin stars for this tiny restaurant in a subway station in Tokyo. It was supposed to be the toughest reservation in the world and one of the most unique dining experiences you could ever have. So I was taken to him, and in the, in, in, in the documentary, I went to his restaurant ultimately to witness his firsthand, but in the documentary, someone describes him as applying a term called shokunin, a Japanese word, and when I looked it up as the relentless pursuit of perfection, I think for the good of society or for the good of others. Here was this guy who was 88 years old who had already won all of this acclaim for his, his sushi making, and he was still trying to get better at what he did. It wasn't, oh. it wasn't enough. It wasn't that he was driven to be more successful. He was driven just to be better at what he did. He had no reason really, at least outwardly, to need that or to even want that, but yet he did. It was very, very interesting to me. And what it reminded me of, and Rune Arledge in many respects was this way too, is that often people settle yeah. for something that may, they may feel is good, when with more work, more time, more resources, just more A longer guts, snorkel. A longer snorkel. <laughs> yeah. You can make it great. Yeah. And so why aren't we in the business of always trying to make something great? Now, of course, you know, it's easy to say, well, of course we, we want everything to be great. But it doesn't mean just because you want something to be great, you apply yourself to get it that so way. So the relentless pursuit of perfection isn't being a perfectionist. It is not accepting mediocrity. Correct. And it not is... giving up. He was born Robert Allen Iger on Long Island. His father, a Navy veteran, his mother, a junior high librarian. My grandparents took me to see Cinderella, first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. After a short stint as a local weatherman, my real dream was to be Walter Cronkite. I wanted to be a television journalist. Actually, I wanted to be an anchorman. His big break came in 1974 when he was hired as a studio supervisor at ABC. One of his first jobs, working with Frank Sinatra at Madison Square Garden. Bob Iger spent the next three decades climbing the corporate ladder, ultimately overseeing the ABC network. He put shows, you'll all remember, like Home Improvement, NYPD Blue, and Desperate Housewives, and many others on the TV lineup. 
1996, Disney bought ABC in one of the largest entertainment mergers of the time. Nine years later, Bob Iger would take over for Michael Eisner, becoming the sixth CEO in Disney's 95-year history. There is such a wonderful quote that you use in the book about your dad, because your dad suffered from depression. He was a, a severe manic depressive. Yeah. And a lot of people take that on, the burden of what their parents experience, and they take that on. You took it on, and you did it in a much different way. You decided, I will not be this person, right? Yes, yeah. yes. One of the quotes that moved me so much is actually early on in the book, you write, I attended Ithaca College and spent nearly every weekend night, my freshman and sophomore year, making pizza. But I got mostly Bs and a few As in high school. But academics was never my passion. Something clicked for me when I went to college. I was determined to work hard, learn as much as I could learn. And I think that too was related to my father, a function of never wanting, this is what got me, never wanting to experience the same sense of failure yes. that he felt about himself. I didn't have a clear idea of what success meant, no specific vision of being wealthy or powerful, but I was determined not to live a life of disappointment. Mm -hmm. Whatever shape my life took, I told myself there wasn't a chance in the world that I was going to toil on in frustration and lack fulfillment. I thought, wow, how old were you when you had figured that out already? I was aware that he was tormented by self-disappointment mm. at a very young age. When I say very young, 10, 11, 12 years old. And then I, uh, I had discussions with him about it later in life, but I also spoke with my mother about it as well. I was the oldest son. She turned to me often uh, to, I guess, in a way, step into his shoes in the household mm -hmm. as you know, a, a, someone who was more stable, um, more measured, um, maybe even more secure. Mm -hmm. So I felt that that responsibility, but I also was of so... Of being the, quote, little man of the house, yes. so to speak, yeah. Yes, and, and it wasn't... I didn't ever feel that I was burdened by it, but I felt it. But in his case, his profound personal self-disappointment uh, was omnipresent in his in our house but he was and a in working my relationship man. with him. He was him. a working man who provided for the family and... Barely. Yeah. He lost many jobs mm -hmm. um, because his, his depression often resulted in frustration and anger. And Did you all know that it was depression? Did you know to call it depression then? Yes, I was aware that he got electric shock treatment at some point mm. when I was young. I was aware that he was on a number of different medications. But also, we, we, you speak in the book, uh, Ride of a Lifetime, about the fact that who you are is a product of, as all of us, nature and nurturing. Mm -hmm. So coming from that father, coming from your mother, also gave you all the qualities of leadership that now everybody heralds. Well, yes, I, I, I clearly, I have no idea what, what genes I was infused with mm -hmm. that contributed to some of this, but clearly my upbringing had a lot to do with it. And, uh, you know, what my parents gave me and, and taught me, even though some of the lessons were difficult, like the one we just, we just discussed, had a profound effect on who I became and mm -hmm. who I am. Yeah. I appreciate what you say on page 45. You say, I didn't want to be in the business of playing it safe. I wanted to be in the business of creating possibilities for greatness. Of all the lessons I learned in that first year running ABC Primetime, the need to be comfortable with failure was the most profound. 
You earn as much respect and goodwill by standing by someone in the wake of a failure as you do by giving them credit for a success. Now, I read this and I thought, I think people think of failure as practically anti-American. It's really hard for people to accept failure. How did you do that? Well, I, by the way, I, I don't put a brand on failure. I, I don't call failure good in any way. Um, but, you know, the business that we're in as a company is mostly, you know, creating, telling stories and, right. and creativity. And creativity can't be reduced in any way to science or math. Um, it's just some a things huge works amount. and some things yes. don't. So there's a huge amount of risk in it. And there's an inevitability to failure. Not everything will work. It's somebody's idea that has to be executed well, and there are all kinds of factors that could stand in the way of executing something well, or of an idea basically not being fulfilled. And so it becomes not only inevitability, but something you must learn how to process, I believe, in, either, in, in, in order to be great at creativity. In other words, in order to take big bets, in order to be bold, in order to try new ideas, you have to be willing to fa you have to be willing to fail because you, you you know going into every one of these things that there's no guarantee that they'll work. And the most important thing is when failure occurs, which it, it, it often does, you must know how to process it, particularly with the people who have are responsible for it, have created the idea, and the people who are involved with it and helping see it through. When you got the job of CEO, chairman. CEO. Okay. So. Chairman you, came next. Chairman <laughs> came next. Oh, so you get the job and you immediately start innovating. I mean, at the time, yeah. Michael Eisner, those of you who read the book, want the whole inside story, there'd been a lot going on between Michael Eisner, Steve Jobs, yeah. Pixar. There had been some distancing there. Yes, and the relationship was totally fractured. Was totally fractured, and you pick up the phone and you call Steve Jobs. Was that a hard phone call? No. No, there was nothing to lose. And the reason I did that is because I had in my mind that in the job, in terms of priorities, I need to figure out what we were going to do with animation, which was such an important business to Disney. And Pixar had been such a valuable partner to us that at some point I had to figure out whether that relationship was fixable or not. And uh, he was typical Steve. How long have you worked for Michael Eisner? I said five years. And he said, why should I think, or I think I said 10 years, sorry. I was COO for five yeah. years. He said, well, why should I think anything's gonna be different with you in the job? And I said, I just want a chance to, to prove that it will be. Give me that chance. And he said, well, when the dust settles, come up and talk. And that's what began um, a relationship with him. I didn't really have one that ultimately resulted in not only us buying Pixar, but Steve becoming our largest shareholder and a member of our board. And then a very good friend of mine. I think we get an insight into Steve Jobs that I've never seen before, even reading the, the biography of him. We see a side of him that we didn't know. Yeah. You became really close friends with him, and he actually told you about the cancer. Yeah. That moment on the bench, describe that moment on the bench. We were announcing the acquisition of Pixar uh, from Pixar. We had gone up to uh, Pixar's headquarters in Emeryville, California. It was a $7.4 billion acquisition, and we would be announcing it at around 1 o'clock California time after the stock market closed. Mm -hmm. And we were assembled in a conference room, kind of waiting for the announcement to be made, and Steve showed up at the door and said, pointed his finger at me or did sort of this and said, can we go for a walk? And I thought, oh. He wants to 
this can't be good. He wants to get out of the deal or he wants more money or he wants something. I just thought, hey, what, why would he want to go for a walk with me on the brink of making this gigantic announcement? Yeah. And we went for a walk. The Pixar campus is beautiful campus with beautiful walking paths. And there was a bench that the two of us sat down and he put his arm behind me on the bench. I thought, this is very interesting. I wasn't close with him at this point. I was getting close. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to tell you something that my only my doctor and my wife knows. Whoa. And he had had cancer a few years earlier. It was announced and he was operated on and he declared himself cured. It was a form of pancreatic cancer that was operable. And this was a few years after that. And nothing had been said more about his illness or about his medical condition because it was assumed he was fine. And he said, and I, I so he said to me, I'm telling you something only Lorene Jobs, his wife, and, and my doctor knows. And I, I, you can't tell anybody else. I'm thinking, this has, got, this has got to be momentous in some form. Were you and, thinking then that the cancer had come back? Well, when he said doctor, you thought, I yeah. immediately yeah. thought something's bad here. Mm -hmm. And he said, I, I need you to know my cancer has come back. He gave me some details. And I said, why are you telling me this? And he said, I'm giving you a chance to get out of the deal. I said, get out of the deal. And I looked at my watch. There was a clock ticking at this point because we were going, we, we had announced a press conference and we were going kind of live to the world to tell everybody about this deal. And I thought, my goodness, in less than an hour, we have to tell everybody this and what am I going to do? I had no idea what my responsibilities were. He was becoming a member of the board and our largest shareholder even though we were buying Pixar. We weren't buying Steve Jobs. And I said, you need to tell me more. And he told me that he had a 50-50 chance of living for five years. And I said, can you tell me more? And he told me he had a metastasized to his liver. And I think I even asked, give me some more perspective. And he said, uh, my son is in high school, is going to graduate in four years. I'm going to be at his graduation. My son Reed, I thought, wow. There's something very powerful in that statement, that he's so determined to live and it was very meaningful to me. And it was so, it came so from, from, from deep within him. And I could tell he was emotional about it. And I said, look, I have no idea what my legal responsibilities are here. You have my word, I won't tell people. I, I don't really know what the right thing to do here is from a corporate perspective, but my sense is that um, we should go through with this. I'm not gonna back out, I appreciate the opportunity. Mm. And- um, I said a lot yeah. about him and about you. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I never, I haven't really thought much about what it said about me. Uh, other than maybe I just it didn't cause, it, you know, it was, a, like, it was a difficult moment because um, um, even though I wasn't that attached to him at that point, this guy was telling me that he was He's very ill yeah. and it couldn't be good. That he was dying. And he was talking about his kids and I felt terrible for him. Mm -hmm. So I had that going on, but I wasn't, I wasn't that concerned about the, I'll call it the corporate side. That was 2000, early 2006, and he died in October of 2011. And uh, so he was, made the graduation. He made the graduation. He made that and a lot more. What he did in that period of time, in terms of his life and at Apple, is just extraordinary. Just yeah. and the heroism that he exhibited in that period of time, with such incredible pain. And then I love this moment when Lorraine Jobs says to you. She tells you about the moment Steve tells her yeah. that he has told you. Yeah. And she says, can we trust him? 
and Steve Jobs says about you, I love that guy. Yes, she yeah. told me that at the cemetery. Mm. She said, I've never told you my side of that story. Mm. And we'd never discussed it. Mm. And uh, it was about them com him coming home that night after the announcement. And as you said, he, she asked him whether he told me, and he said, I did. They had apparently had a, a, quite a discussion, if not an argument, the night before about not whether he should, not so they had it. discussed it. Yeah. So she said, did you tell him? And he said, I did. She said, can I trust that guy? And, she tells me at the cemetery, I, I love that. He said, I love that guy. I love that guy. I, it was a moment. What I really gained from the book is that you certainly know how to compartmentalize. And you also, what struck me was that you look at every crisis or catastrophe as a puzzle. Most people fall apart. You mm -hmm. see it as a puzzle. Is that something you think other people can learn or it's just the way you operate? Well, I think it is something people can learn because it, it, the first thing you have to realize when you're faced with some kind of crisis or something that's particularly challenging or difficult is it's not going to go away if you ignore it or if you minimize it in yeah. some form. You have to deal with it. So the puzzle, one, you, you put the puzzle in front of you, and two, you then try to figure out how do you solve it because mm. you don't have a choice. Mm. And these jobs, particularly when something particularly big and important or, or, or some crisis arises. Well, you can't will them away. You can't rely on others just to take care of it, particularly in this world. Well, the fact so that fast. you opened the ride of a lifetime yeah. with one of the more horrible moments of your entire life, actually. Yes. Yeah. So I want you to set the scene for everybody. 18 years, you're you're working on opening the biggest theme park mm -hmm. ever in Shanghai for 18 years. First of all, none of us who heard about that opening could imagine that that much time, that many meetings with prime ministers and people mm -hmm. in the government had, had transpired for and 18 years. And all the trips. Years. And all the trips. How many trips? At the time we opened it, I think it was at least 40. 40 trips yeah, to China. Over 10 in the six months leading up to it. I was going almost every other week for at some point. You know, leading up to its opening, I was I, I had already given a good part of my life, not mm -hmm. just my career, to that one project, which represented something huge for the company, too, because you realize, you know, Walt Disney opened Disneyland, gave the world sort of the quintessential theme park in 1955. We had opened others in, in Orlando and in Paris and Tokyo and in Hong Kong, but this was bringing Walt's vision of a theme park to mainland China. China. The most populous country in the world, a country that would have been unheard of in Walt's day, and even in my early days, that we would be able to build Disneyland there. Partners and It's the biggest, executives. grandest thing you've been working on for 18 years, and yep. then you get... Well, the first thing that happened was there was a, there was a terrible... Um, nightclub shooting in Orlando. Multiple people have been killed and injured. The immediate um, process that they go through is to... This is the uh, pulse is to, shooting. Correct. Yes. Is to try to figure out whether any of our people were there. And you all have a way of tracking whether your people were there. Yes. We and track... you have over 200,000 employees and you can track where your people are? Yes. We have procedures in place. So what goes through your mind is... Not to mention that you later learned that the shooter yeah. had come to Disney first. We were the first target. We were his first target. And he had, he had um, surveyed our property before mm. that night. Wow. So we were the target. And just, you know, by happenstance, that night, there was a heavy metal concert at the House of Blues at uh, mm -hmm. Disney World. It was then called Downtown Disney, which mm -hmm. is a retail dining and entertainment area. 
subsequently been renamed. And that night, because there was a heavy metal concert, there was more security than normal. So what happened was when he went, he saw more security there that night than he had seen previously. Mm. And so it was a harder target. I mean, we, it was basically much tougher for him. There was a metal detector, there were plain clothes and, and uniformed police. There was just a security presence there mm. that he didn't expect. So he turned around and left. Whoa. And then we were told subsequently he, he had Googled nightclubs in Orlando and where the first search result he went to, but there was road construction and he couldn't get close to it. And the next result was the Pulse nightclub. So it, was chi- it was a chilling, chilling. moment because you chilling. think... And how soon after the Pulse shooting did you get the next phone call? The Pulse shooting was on the weekend, and um, we sent the head of Disney World, who had been with us in Shanghai for the opening, back Back to to deal with the aftermath of the Pulse shooting. And I believe it was Wednesday, so I think it was Sunday that we were well aware of the Pulse shooting in terms of details, and then in Shanghai. And then on Wednesday, I was touring our board of directors at Shanghai Disneyland, walking around the park. Yeah. And the head of our parks and resorts group, Bob Chavik, came over to me. Uh, and I could tell there was, there was a look on his face. I knew right away something had happened. Of course, in my mind, I'm still thinking about a nightclub shooting. And he said, an alligator has, has attacked or taken a child. We don't have any more details. So when you got the details, obviously, and anybody who's been in any kind of situation where there's a possibility of being sued or there's a possibility of admitting to guilt. Everybody involved, especially the lawyers, say, don't call, don't say anything, keep quiet, let us figure this out. And you did not allow that to happen. No. uh, First of all, I thought it it was, you know, such a terrible thing uh, to experience for that family. Um, to witness their, their own child mm-hmm. you know, being killed by an alligator. And it affected all of us deeply because you have a sense of responsibility. They were on our property. And I didn't have any, many details at that time in terms of how it possibly could happen, but I felt this deep sense of, again, responsibility and felt that as the CEO of the company, I had to accept that responsibility um, and, and to do so in a personal fashion mm. with the family directly and in a public fashion. Was that the hardest phone call you ever had to make? Yes, mm. by far, by far. And, and Did you know what you were going to say before you got on the phone? No, I had, the first thing I did was I had dictated a public statement mm-hmm. that I thought we should make, that I should make uh, to my team. And then I decided that I had to speak with the parents. I didn't know whether they would want to speak with me. Um, Matt and Melissa Graves, but I I wanted to try. So what did you say? Well, I told them who I was, obviously where I was. They seemed to be aware of that, that I was in Shanghai, uh, that I was far away. I wanted them to know because I I thought they might expect that I would would come see them. I told them that I was a grandparent and a parent of four kids. At that point, I think I had three grandchildren. Uh, And I could not fathom what what it must feel like and to lose a child. And I, I, I just apologize for not having appropriate words, but that I wanted to say not only how, how, how deeply I felt for the family and um, for their loss, but I wanted to offer my help in any way I could give it. Mm. And I said to him, I asked, is there anything I can do? And, he, and I was surprised when he responded 
by saying, as a matter of fact, there is. Which is an incredible thing for him to say. And he said, I, I don't want my son's life to have been lived in vain. You have to promise me that you will do whatever you possibly can to prevent this from ever happening to another child. Uh -huh. And then I said, yes, of course I promise that. And uh, I got off the phone and I immediately assembled my team again, including the head of our global parks and resorts group, Bob Chapik. And I said, I just made this promise. I want to begin fulfilling it now. Mm. I want you to do everything we, I want to start now. And we did. So Disney has Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilms and now... And theme parks and cruise ships. Theme parks. And... And... How does it all sort of get managed in here? Well, it starts with great people and the confidence that I have in them that they're managing it and are going to manage it well. Because most of the decisions and most of the management of all of those things done yeah. by other people. And what's the key to I, hiring great people? Well, I think there's, there are a few things. I think you, you have to... What are you to, looking for? I look for... Well, I always look for integrity. Oh, um, yeah. I look for an a kind of enthusiasm, but a healthy enthusiasm. People that, that, that love what they do, that are eager but driven for good reasons, eager for good reasons, because they love what they do. They're not, not necessarily eager for success or power or money or whatever. They're eager to be mm -hmm. good mm -hmm. um, because they, lo they love the business. I love curiosity. Curiosity is such an invaluable, valuable attribute in someone. And I've said it, you know, you can't be innovative. You can't go to new places or try new things unless you're curious. Mm. And it's very powerful in someone. So look for all those things. I like people who are just generally, generally decent people and authentic, real, not phony. What you see is what you get. It's a collection of things. When you have to make a decision, it appears that you are able to not stew about it if you're in a difficult, challenging situation, particularly something that the rest of the public knows. I'm speaking specifically about Roseanne a couple of years ago. Roseanne had done a tweet that many people deemed inappropriate. Obviously, you did too. And that happened just like, bam. Yes. Wow. Tell us about that. Well, it's interesting. She said something in a tweet or expressed something that I thought was just blatantly racist. And I, I heard about it on literally on my way into my office through the door. Yeah. And it was immediately obvious to me what had to be done. Immediately. And I it was mean, only like it didn't take days or even hours. No, it, it took it took about five minutes to know what we had to do Whoa. and a couple of hours to assemble the right people and communicate it appropriately and then we, and then we we made it publicly and people said boy that must have been a difficult decision i've often found that the decisions that at least appear to the outside world to be the most difficult are the easiest to make you know why everybody said it was a difficult decision I, wasn't that like the number one show it was the number one show on tv certainly the number it's one the show number on one abc show on abc yes. at the time and you have to discount that that's totally meaningless in that regard i could not regard. believe that that happened that quickly over uh, when something is bringing in that kind of revenue you can't it's not a factor why not have a conversation with roseanne I didn't think that there was any circumstance that would make that right. It wasn't an apology. There wasn't context. Look, there are times when you see or hear something or read something where context has to be considered. Yeah. In that particular case, and what immediately went through my mind, and you, you have to process for a moment, yeah. was what could make this okay? Yeah. Was it someone else's tweet? What? No. Is it, was there some subtext? Did she mean something else? 
No, it seemed completely insensitive, completely disrespectful. But it's very clear the decision was, it was easy to make. What she had done was very, very clear. I did not believe any context could make this in any way better or acceptable or could result in us forgiving her. So we did it. And look, and you also know in today's world, you, if, if there's a decision to be made by you, then make it, because otherwise the world will make it for you, right. and that's never good. Yeah, you need to control your own narrative. Let's talk about Black Panther. Yes, uh, one of the, you know, there've been a lot of great days in the 15 years or so that I've been on this job. That's one of the highlights. Yeah. I, Personal I, highlight reel. Yeah. And I know movie. that it would not have happened without you. Not only did you give the green light for it, but you did the thing that it needed. You said, I'm going to not just green light it, but I'm going to give you the money and the support and the team and the system to do what you need to do, Ryan. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic experience. So personally fulfilling and professionally fulfilling. We felt for a while that we needed to infuse our stories in general, but Marvel in particular, with more diversity. We'd not done a superhero movie, which was Marvel's business, where the lead was a woman. And we did not do one, we have one that we, where the superhero was black. And yeah. I knew of the character, yeah. Black Panther. And so in conversation with Marvel, we decided that we would green light, as they say in our business, or give approval for them to make a woman superhero movie, that's Captain Marvel, and a black superhero movie based on the Black Panther character. In fact, a movie that was primarily black characters and actors wow. taking place in a mythical black country called Wakanda. And they hired the Marvel people. And there was an, a bit of an argument about it because we put a lot into these films. And in order for them to succeed, not just creatively, but commercially, they have to succeed in countries well beyond the United States and territories. And then there's there always been that argument that black films don't do well overseas. Yes. yes. Women superhero films yes. don't work. Yes. I had been around so long, and I had been told or heard over the years, well, this can't work and that can't work. And time after time after time, there's a lesson that I've learned is that a lot of those beliefs or shibboleths or things that no longer apply in today's world. That's right. It's a, and the world changes so because much. Because the world has changed. Toss them out. Yes. And again, it goes back to needing to innovate, needing to recognize how much the world has changed, needing to be bold, taking risks, all those things, but also fundamentally doing what you believed was right. Yeah, what you believed was right, and you had to convince everybody else that this was the right decision. We yes, can't wait for became, two. We can't wait for two. It became a phenomenon. I know, but let me tell you this. The other day, someone called me and asked me um, for a comment about you, because I've known Bob since we Junior both were pups. <laughs> we both were pups. And I think this is a Wall Street Journal, and I said to the guy, look, I know how you're going to ask me all these questions. I only want to say one thing to you, and that is, if Bob Iger had decided to run for president, I would be canvassing in Iowa right now. I would be going door to door. I would be doing, I said, I always pictured myself standing on somebody's step in Brooklyn. And you're getting saying, me anxious. And them <laughs> saying, Oprah, what are you doing here? And I'm like, let me tell you about my friend Bob. Why didn't you run for president? I wish, first of all, more well, than ever, every day, I think, I'm I wish flattered. you had done it. I'm I deeply, wish you had done I'm it. I'm deeply flattered. Is I had this conversation with President Obama and his family a few times. Yes. His kids and his wife clearly believed that I had the better job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. He never admitted that I did. But, uh. Uh, but I, Michelle and the girls, at some point I talked to them, they, they believed I had the better job. Will you ever run? No. No. Well, 
I think you did a great job with this. That's nice of you. Thank you. It has been the ride of a lifetime. Yes, and that's my title. To, yeah, continues <laughs> to be the ride I'm of a lifetime. Still riding, yes. Yeah, Little still did riding. I know I'd still be on the ride. Hmm. A good Thank one. You. Thank you. Thanks, it was good. Thank you. Good, Bobby. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>